And some of your friends are asking you questions. Aren't those freeways congested? Can you find your way around? Will you find a place to stay? Does the city have much of a cultural life? What about the smog? Will you have to pay exorbitant prices? Won't it be terribly crowded? What about security? How safe is Los Angeles? Got expenses, you know. Guess what? Uncle Sam don't give a shit about your expenses. You want bread? Fuck a baker. Cinematic Void Podcast. Cinematic Void is a cult film series that hosts screenings in the Los Angeles area as well as virtually. I'm your host, Jim Branscombe, and joining me as always is... Hey, what's going on? It's Nick Vance, Paranoid Futures on Instagram and Letterboxd. You can find Cinematic Void on the World Wide Web at cinematicvoid.com, as well as Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and all major podcast platforms. If you want to support The Void, consider joining our Patreon. As we're recording this, we're in the, the thick... Eh, it's not really thick. It's like... Throws? throws it's like day two of bleak week and like, <laughs> we're in the throes of bleak week and it might as well be beyond fest to us because it just it feels about the same bleak yes bleak beyond bleak beyond bleak <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to think what else has been going on. oh yeah i did go to the frida and had the first cinematic void down there yes yeah, so how was that it was it was great like shout out to trevor and the staff of the frida it was fun Got to see the homie Mike Felix. You know, he helped me sling some merch. We showed demons. It, it was a good time. Hell yeah, very sick. It's, you know, it's kind of nice to be, like, out of your territory. And it's not like it was unfamiliar. I've been to the Frida before. I actually hadn't been to the Frida since it was pre-pandemic that I went. I like you say you're out of your territory, like, as if you're a old, like, a 70s pro wrestler, like, going to a different territory. Well, kind of, it kind of, like, is that. It's like I had to, like, you know go to different like you know how old wrestlers had to jump in their fucking like vans and drive to like another the next territory i get i guess this is the first time i've done one in california that was not in los angeles at all because there's been a few events that i've hosted that weren't cinematech related but they're all still kind of close by so this is you know it's a new frontier and kind of excited for it i'm, I'm actually going to be back there in july i'm going to be doing roadhouse kind of excited because like they i have i sent a bunch of different picks so i was like kind of i was kind of leaning not doing horror because i'd rather just kind of alternate what i'm doing even though i'm there bi-monthly it's just like i kind of like i don't want to get pigeonholed at like everything i'm gonna do is horror so mm-hmm. it's like start off pretty quick do demons go to roadhouse nice has anything else been going on I don't know. Last week, I uh, last week I projected the cell for the Cinematic Void show. That, that I thought that was awesome. The print looked great. Yeah, I, I want to give you a shout out because you nailed those like fucking real changes. Thanks, man. Yeah, and they some of those like Q marks were kind of hard because they were in the middle of the fucking print. Yeah, it was uh, because it's in scope, so they kind of stretch out in the with the anamorphic lens. Yeah, so it's just like, boop, but you nailed every single one of them. It, the only thing about when we were doing that i noticed the cell screening had nothing to do with what you were doing it's like i think the last reel because i think there were six reels for the cell weren't there yeah 
that last one, like I guess some having the the five point one optical track because mm-hmm. it was kind of like cutting out a little bit, like towards the end of the movie. But like otherwise, it yeah, pretty flawless. And give a special shout out to Kate Lynch from Salem Horror Fest came down and introduced and made a lot of people think of J Lo differently in a very good way. Cool like gave a very impassioned like the importance of Jennifer Lopez and like where she was at context wise in her career when she made that film and a lot of other things. So um, hopefully Kay and I will be doing, might be doing another LA screening later this year, but should be doing some stuff for Salem Horror Fest coming up next year too. So right on, very cool. So keep around for that unless, so I have a minor surgery I'm going in for after this podcast. So if this is the last episode. Thanks for all your support for cinematic void. Yeah, I mean, if there's no episode that comes out after this, that means I'm just dead. I'm going to keep the podcast going without him. Actually, I, won't, I won't do screenings, but I'll keep the podcast going. <laughs> and Nikolai comes in. Finally, my arch nemesis takes my spot. <laughs> Actually, you know, I, I'd be cool with that. I'll, I'll, I'll take the Guar approach to Cinematic Void. That it, sh- it should just keep on going without me in some way or shape or form. Nikolai can host the screenings. Right on, there you go. Okay. There you go. So, yeah, Nikolai, or I could give it to, you know, girlfriend Leslie could do it, or Mike Felix could do that. It could be a revolving. Yeah. We'll, we'll revolve it. So, if I don't make it through this surgery. We've already replaced you. Yeah, we've already <laughs> replaced me. In fact, you guys are like, hey, let's turn up the anesthesia a little bit. You know. So, it's just like, well, Jim didn't make it through this, like, completely non-fatal minor surgery. So, we're taking over. So, last week... um, before uh, before you had your event at the Frida, we actually went to the theater together to watch something for the first time in a while. We went to watch uh, To Live and Die in L.A. on the Friday. Uh, it was actually the Friday after you screened it. Yeah. I actually saw this twice in the theater, and then we were just kind of talking. It's like, you know, because we we're trying to figure out what the fuck we were actually doing an episode on. Because, like, no disrespect to that Freddy's knockoff episode, but it took forever to fucking, like, watch two <laughs> movies and then fucking record it. I was like, oh man, we got to figure out like an easier way to do it. And we were, t- we, we had a bunch of other topics that we're actually going to be talking about like later that are just more film related, free form without like having to take time to watch and mm-hmm. take notes and all that. But you know, after, you know, kind of after we screen, we went to that screen at Live Nine LA. It's like, you know what? Fuck it. Why don't we just do an episode on it? Cause that was your first time seeing it. Yeah, yeah. I, I had not seen this one, so you got to see it twice in one week, and I finally saw it. So, and, you know, we had a little bit of discussion afterwards on some things, and I, I found it interesting because it's just like, this is sensibility, taste, and what one looks for in a movie. So I was like, yeah, why don't we just do that as the episode? So, you know, we're going to take a break here, and when we come back, we're going to be talking about William Freakins to Live and Die in L.A. here on the Cinematic Boy Podcast. If you're a victim of a disease called bulimia, this is an all-too-familiar scene, and you know what comes next. Tremendous guilt, the fear of gaining weight. So you rid your body of the food, trying over and over to eat and stay thin, no matter what the cost. But the professionals at Charter can help. Not only bulimia, but a wide range of other eating disorders as well. So call us, because if you're bulimic, that empty feeling inside won't go away by itself. Swimming, camping, and sports are just a few of the fun activities this summer at your local recreation center. Call your local park today and get involved. A mother like me. Pretty good. A daughter like her. We've got what it takes to make the best changes occur. Mom, is this new? Mm-hmm. New sugar-free tank. 100% Nutrisweet. Sugar-free tang with a full day 
Just six calories. Whatever it takes, whatever we're gonna be. It's my blood. Those are my genes. Starting out right, new sugar-free tang. Welcome back. We're going to be talking about William Freakin's 1985 film To Live and Die in L.A. on the Cinematic Void podcast. I'm just going to go over some particulars for those you might not have seen it. Although, if you're listening to this podcast, there will be spoilers. So, maybe go watch the movie and then come back and listen to this. Or, maybe listen to it first and get hyped up and then go see it. I mean, there's only one, I think, really major spoil that spoiler that could ruin the movie for someone. We're definitely going to say it. Yeah, we're going to definitely say it. So, if you don't want that spoiled... Just pause, watch, and come back. But anyway, this film stars William L. Peterson, John Pankow, Willem Dafoe, Deborah Feuer, Darlene Flugel, John Totoro, Dean Stockwell, and Robert Downey Sr., which is always a kind of nice surprise when he pops up in movies. It's based on a novel by Gerald Petovich, who co-wrote the screenplay with William Freakin and was also at the Monday screening of The Live and Die in L.A. Oh, sick. And I wonder what he felt of the fucking shenanigans we did. <laughs> So, before we get into the rest of this, we did a bit in front of it, like we sometimes do. It was um, Chris Lemaire, who hap- who works for the Cinematech, and happens to look what William Peterson. So, I convinced them to come back and play William Peterson's stunt double again. We did this shit during Manhunter. And then Deanna Rooney played Willem Dafoe's stunt double. Except, it was Willem Dafoe from The Lighthouse. She hid in a trash can on stage... For 30 fucking minutes. And we're like, you don't have to do that. We can have this, you can get in the trash can, we can kind of push it out to the side, at, like during the, like the trailers and stuff. No. Sat in a <laughs> fucking trash can on stage for a half hour. Like her legs went numb. And then like she didn't have her cell phone. So we had like, she could fucking die in that trash can. We could have fucking just opened it up and found her dead body in there. I mean, she was fine, but it's just like the commit committing to the bit, yeah, is insane. Respect and the fucking guy that wrote the book is there. I have no <laughs> idea what he thought about it. But we had a we had a live and die in L.A. shirt to give away thanks to the Spurs Press. Shout out to homie Shay Hardcore who gave us one to give away, and we basically recreated the the car chase for the movie. So Chris is pushing the trash can with Deanna dressed as fucking lighthouse Wilm the foe at these people and they had to like jump out of the way the bet whoever jumped out of the way the most dramatic and best won the shirt kind of prize. Anyway, back to the actual movie here. Uh it was the director of photography on this movie is the great Robbie Mueller who did a bunch of stuff for Vin Vendors, Lars Van Kier, you know, um Jim Jarmusch as well as he was the DP on Repo Man. Like, lots of fucking fantastic movies. I guess quite a bit of movies that Harry Dean Stanton's in, too. Just the way of the world. Uh, the film was edited, I guess he's listed as supervisor, supervising editor, is um, Bud Smith, who's worked for worked with William Freakin a ton. He worked on Exorcist, Sorcerer, you know, Cruising. He was also, um, I think, co-producer and the second unit director on it, so he was shooting some of the action scenes or whatever. Um, the film also features... And this is for Nikolai, a banger, 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 banger soundtrack by Wang Chung. You may agree or disagree now that you've actually heard it, but we'll talk about that later. For those you have not seen this movie, and again, you should probably pause it, watch it, and come back for this. A fearless Secret Service agent will stop at nothing to bring down the counterfeiter who killed his partner. Pretty simple premise, you know? I watched this twice in a week. You you came to the Friday screening, and there was a difference in the audience. Like, the Void crowd watching it was like... 
there's like laughs. People are like getting into the action during the car chase. Like I was sitting next to Kevin Kulosh and his wife, Lisa. Lisa was having a panic attack during the fucking car chase. And it was like just kind of a high energy crowd. When we saw on Friday, energy was not quite the same. I don't want to say it was like low energy or whatever, but I think it's just people came in with like. Just people watching a movie. Yeah, people watching a movie. I, I, I got <laughs> some people at four o'clock in the afternoon watching a movie on a Friday. It's like I, I was, it was packed. Uh, I'm like, don't these people have jobs? Yeah, I mean, where where do, where do these people come from? Yeah, because it 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 wasn't sold out, but it was damn close to the sold it was, out. It again. was actually, yeah, it was really packed. So yeah, I mean, I guess like I, I guess the energy is different. I guess that's the you know when you go to a void show, and it, I think there's a lot of void regulars at that the Monday screening. You get a certain energy or anticipation where this one was kind of like just a crowd yeah. like when i did my intro and i'm like named i knew it was like i don't know where it's when i named willem dafoe and got no reaction that's weird everybody loves willem dafoe yeah not that crowd i was like you know young willem dafoe and like nothing boondock saints no boondock it's, yeah, but it's, <laughs> it's like boondock. Any, anyone why'd you pick boondock saints at her that's a valid point it's the funniest option it is the funniest it's like come on you've seen boondock saints if i said that like half the audience would have got up and left i would have been better off saying like you know he's green goblin and spider-man I mean, the, the the movie played well both times. It's just, like, the difference of, like, how you set up a crowd and what the expectations are. Yeah. But I want to say, like, seeing it twice on film in a week was, like, I basically just took that opportunity. It's like, fuck, when am I going to sit in the theater and watch this again? Probably never. How do you think the crowd on Friday would have reacted to Deanna jumping out of the trash can? <laughs> <laughs> Dead silence. <laughs> We should have had her brought. We should have had her stay in the trash can from Monday through Friday, and then she gets out and just like probably like knock over the trash can. She fell out of the trash can after the bid. Like her legs were asleep. Again, she didn't have to do that. That was her choice. We were like, we can do this a different way. No, I'm committed. So anyway, so yeah, we we should kind of get in some things here. So the thing that like this movie kind of hits right off the right off the bat, which a lot of people don't know, is the Secret Service, I guess most people envision as they protect the president. But their secondary job is to go after counterfeit money and forgery and stuff like that. And I, you know, I don't know if it's like commonly known. I think you're the, you are the only person that knows this and, and repeatedly talks about that fact. No, we both. We <laughs> Not both, me. I. You know, it's this. something I for, I forget every at every opportunity. <laughs> <laughs> Just erase your mind. So I, I let me let me add the your money story, your counterfeit money story that you're probably going to tell today. Yes, I just wanted to be known for the record, for the record, that had. You not mention it after that day. I never would have thought about it again in my life. Not once. And that- never. It was not. A, it was not an event for me. I was not an event for me. <laughs> and uh, I don't know. That's that's it. I love that you love that story so much. And and had you never repeated it, I would not even know that it happened. Now. Well, I mean, what? Kind, well, <laughs> well, I, I, I mean, I'm, I guess I'm saying this so vague. I, so I'm ba- I'm more or less begging you to tell the story. I well, suppose. Are, are you really? <laughs> no. <laughs> no. Well, fuck you. You're gonna hear it anyway. <laughs> Well, there, there's a reason why it's stuck with me, and I'll kind of get into it. So, 
first thing is like I I you know having knowing this fact I didn't know why the fucking Secret Service did this so I actually used Google and it took me to the actual Secret Service website which I guess you can apply for online. So I I was like really that was like a job site. Yeah, it was a job. It was the Secret Service. It's like you know you could you can send your application become a Secret Service agent. Obviously, there's probably tons of vetting. And, like, all kinds of shit to get you there. But it's just, like, it's kind of weird that you go, like, you just send your LinkedIn fucking profile to the Secret Service. Like, hey, check me out, man. I could save the president and stop some some counterfeiters. But, so, on their website, I guess there's a, they had a frequently asked question. Because I'm sure this does come up for people like me who, you know, when I get to the story here. Anyway. According to their site, the Secret Service was originally founded in 1865 to suppress counterfeit money. <laughs> You're laughing at me, you son of a bitch. Counterfeit money, while the agency still spends a lot of time investigating counterfeit money, both in the United States and overseas, today's agents also investigate a variety of other financial crimes, including credit card fraud, computer fraud, and bank fraud. So anytime you get fished on your fucking debit card, Secret Service is on that shit. Yeah, they're gonna make sure fucking whatever fucking scumbag is like run up five hundred dollars at Guitar Center doesn't get away with it. Which then I didn't write down this part is like how they end up taking care of the president if their primary function was like stopping counterfeit. And I guess they they started after the Civil War because apparently when the country was coming back together, counterfeiting was running rampant hmm. and like it was fucking up the country because like there was no money was valueless because. Anyone can make money, kind of thing. And then just, we were talking a little offhand. It's just like people forget during the Civil War, there was actually two currencies. There was like, you know, United States, you know, money. And then there was the Confederacy printing their own money. And there was coins and that kind of shit. I guess you can see some in a museum, but it's just like we were kind of joking, like, who's on the Confederate, like, dollar bill? And it was like Dimebag Daryl or some shit. <laughs> The band Alabama. <laughs> it's like, you know, I, who else would be on there? It's like fucking Dimebag Daryl. Hank Jr. Hank Jr. <laughs> Bo Sevis. Oh, fuck. <laughs> I shouldn't have set that up. But it's just like, I mean, chances are most of that shit's burned. But I'm sure you can find it on eBay or see it at like the Smithsonian or something like that. But I think that was also part of the reason they had to have the Secret Service clean that shit off. Because like... It's like someone going to a fucking like store here and trying to pass a Canadian bill. And it's yeah. like, here's my Confederate yeah. Dimebag Daryl dollar. Yeah, dude. <laughs> what the fuck? Giving your fucking Alabama nickel <laughs> right back to you. It's like we don't accept accept this here. But anyway, this the long story whatever we're gonna get into this thing that nick doesn't want me to talk about but he's like <laughs> so when nick and i were in high school with another homie jim de haven we were in uh we went to a technical high school called Hartford technical high school and they it's a i guess it's a trade high school or whatever and the trade we were in was in graphic arts and printing and if you've seen the movie you'll understand why it's relevant because when you get to that scene where Willem defoe's character is counterfeiting money that's the shit we did in class like every day. Like all the steps, like you, you know, take a photo in the dark room, get developed. You have to make a, you have to like, what do they call it? Stripping. Yeah. Where they put a yellow piece of paper and you like cut out the images and then you take that, do the plate maker, make a plate, take that plate, go in your printing press, mix up your ink and then you print. I mean, we, we used to have like, what were those printing presses? AB Dick. Yes. I don't know if that's a standard anymore. 
Oh, yes, it very much is. Yeah, the only person I know that's still doing that job is Jim. So. Yeah, I mean, I did until up to about maybe almost 15 years ago now, but, you know. Yeah, you, But still, like, most of my most of my 20s. I mean, what my problem was, I was a terrible printer. Yeah. I was a fucking... I, I worked with you at one point. I got fired because I just sucked. Yeah. You running a press there? I was running a press. I was... It, I... You know, I could do some stuff, but like, man, I was not good with ink flow on those presses. Anyway, so getting back to we're in high school and every year while we were there, the Secret Service would come pay pay us a visit to basically tell us not to get in counterfeiting. And they would show us some fucking video that was ridiculous. I just remember like there was a scene and they were like, this is what happens when you try to pass a counterfeit bill. And it was like some dude going to a bank. Like who goes to the bank to pass a counterfeit bill anyway? And this guy's trying like, can I break a hundred? And they're like, Sir, did you know this bill's counterfeit? And then, like, he takes off running. Like, Steve, he's running out this... Like, it's like... We were all laughing at it. And the Secret Service guy's like, yeah, this sucks. Like, you know you take it to some fucking shitty store. Yeah, you you, you just fucking break it anywhere. But anyway, I, I think at the end of it, it's just like, hmm, maybe counterfeiting is where it's at. I mean, the, the presses we have could never make anything that was that good. No. No. But, uh... But but so those scenes in this movie, yeah, uh, incredible that the whole montage of of uh, Willem Dafoe, his character, what's his name? Damn it, Rick Masters. Masters. Yeah. So uh, so yeah, the whole the whole montage where Rick Masters is uh creating the money is fucking awesome, and maybe the really the emotional high point for me for the whole film, <laughs> and it's just like I was really engaged in that particular scene. Mm-hmm. It, it's a great montage. It's really great. You got that fucking Wang Chung score fucking coming in hard. Loud. Like, loud and hard. Nice like, and loud, dude. Dude, it... it all right. We're going to... We'll talk about the score later, but there was something with that print. That, when that print started, yeah. it was really quiet, and I kept on like, dude, we got to crank it up. Crank it up. And then when the fucking Wang Chung came mm. in during the opening credits of the movie, it was just like fucking shaking the theater. I was like, yo, we got to turn this down. Hell yeah. <laughs> it was like... But like that montage, like... The first time I saw To Live and Die in L.A., I didn't see the full movie. I just saw that montage because it was uh, I was taking an editing film class, and one of the professors shouted Keith Tishkin, who like introduced me to all kinds of fucking films there. Where, you know, he was like, he was like more like film theory and that kind of stuff, but like he would show like he that's where I saw Godard for the first time, and mm-hmm. like did a class on like indie American indie filmmakers. So it was like Spike Lee and like Jim Jarmusch and like Hal Hartley and like Cohen's and, you know, David Lynch. So it's like getting to see all that stuff in an educational context, but also just being able to watch cool fucking movies Yeah. for editing class. They were showing the best example of montage. They showed the fucking counterfeiting scene from a moment to live and die in LA or the counterfeit printing scene, I should say. Mm-hmm. And it was just like, wow, I need to check this movie out. So a few years later when I finally saw it, it was just like shit's fire. Hell yeah. Going back to like this whole secret service thing. And, you know, freaking actually became interested in this project in the book because he just thought it was fucking surreal that like there was secret service people in California. And when the president was in town, you know, they protect the president. But like during their downtime, they're like looking for counterfeiters. Oh, so they're in like every state. There's yeah, they're secret service in every state just yeah. like hanging out looking for counterfeiters. That's what they do. Yeah. And then when the president gets there, so the. But the president has his own secret service. He's got his own, but they probably have supplemental stuff. Like, because you got to think of the opening of the movie. It's like, you know, it's Reg- It's kind of ironic that Reagan's the president because Secret Service kind of, kind of, kind of didn't do their job at one point with Reagan. 
Can't catch them all. No. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, now that guy's got a musical career. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> anyway, but, like, the opening is, like, they're protecting Reagan because he's in town. They're, like, playing. They, there's a kind of mad bomber or whatever. And that's how the movie starts. It's, like, this dude fucking blowing up. Mm-hmm. Like, he acts like he he's on top of the building and, like, William Peterson's character is trying to talk him down and stuff. And then, like, his partner, like, kind of grabs a guy and, like, he falls off and he just blows the fuck up. Which was really quiet. It's like, man, that's why I felt the mo- there was something wrong. It's like, dude, we got to crank this shit. Yeah. I don't know if it's intentional or it was just, like, that part of the print was, like, just quiet. Whatever. But, like, that's how it starts. And, like, there's no... You kind of get the, oh, these are Secret Service people. And then you get, as the movie op- gets into it, you get into the other side of the Secret Service. So, Freakin, at this point of his career, was like, I don't think he was like, he wasn't at the height, you know? It wasn't Exorcist French Connection era, so he's yeah. like, I think he was doing okay. Like, I can't remember what Cruising did at the box office. I don't think Cruising was too much of a massive hit and other stuff, but like, basically you got this movie, and it's relatively low-budget movie for that time. I think it was like six million, six and a half. So, you know, he had things he had to work around. And because the budget was low, he cast, you know, little-known or unknown actors. But then looking back at the cast, it's like, Jesus Christ, you had a fucking cast and a half. It's, it's, It's amazing how, like, people's careers evolved. The other thing is he shot, he wanted to shoot fast, so that's why Robbie Mueller became his DP. Because Robbie Mueller was, you know, shooting natural light, shooting quick, you know, you know, just getting in and out. Another thing I want to mention, and normally we don't talk about second unit DPs, but Robert Yeoman, who um, went on to do a bunch of Wes Anderson movies, and I think Kevin Smith's Dogma as well, was the second unit DP. So it's like, you get two world-class DPs working on your movie. Yeah, That's fucking incredible. And like, one thing I'll say about the movie, it looks beautiful. You know, obviously, like, there's a lot of that neon red and green that's in the text and stuff, but, like, color palette's just great in this movie. Yeah. And seeing it on film was just, like, ah, it's fucking gorgeous. But, yeah, he basically, because of Robbie Mueller, he could shoot efficiently and quickly and get good stuff. So, let's kind of talk about some of the cast. Because the cast is fucking, you know, great in general, top to bottom. William L. Peterson as Richard Chance. There's something to him. He's, like, got a swagger in this movie. Yeah, he's just playing like a uh, like a macho guy. Yeah, you know? it, it's it's like Matthew McConaughey before there was a Matthew McConaughey. Yeah, but amplified. Right. It's like in I think it's because of the cowboy boots. It's like he walks into a frame and just the way he stops is just like I'm the fucking dude. It's like that, but I but I think it's also like uh, it makes his like you know any of the kind of turns into like being maybe not the not the best cop. Oh, no. you know, it makes it a little more believable when he ha- when he kind of has to be the bad guy. Oh, it, you know, I mean, that's kind of the best point of it. Like, he's not really a good guy. Yeah, he's not a good guy. <laughs> like to, it, from from the jump. Yeah, but, it's just like, but, but you like him. Yeah, it, it's like you know, he's kind of an adrenaline junkie too. Yeah, cause right. They, they got the base jump in, totally. and then like he's got some of the the dialogue is kind of like it's ridiculous, but he delivers it in such a way that there's so such conviction to it. It's like. Him just calling everyone amigo. Now you need a partner. Let me tell you something, amigo. I'm going to bag masters and I don't give a shit how I do it. Right. Yeah, yeah. There's definitely a lot of the, uh, 
I, I don't find this much in like modern films really ever, but there's a lot of great like one-liners. Yeah, and it's know? so there's like the era of the one-liner. Why, why don't whatever happened with the one-liners? I, you know? I think people write them; they just don't have the same impact because like yeah. it, the dialogue, everyone's dialogue is pretty stylized. But like you yeah. know, he's got the one that like got a the biggest reaction at both nights of screening was like you want bread fuck a baker <laughs> i mean it was like so ridiculous and and kind of like out of fucking nowhere yeah it's like <laughs> fucking i the first part is like uncle sam doesn't give a shit about your expenses you want bread fuck a baker because like, it, it didn't really uh it <laughs> it didn't ramp up to that that one just kind of like you know what i mean yeah. like it was just like he had a little bit of an attitude but then that hit was just like all right and there's a, there, there's a bunch of little ones like that that everyone says, like John Totoro when he's getting, like, you know, trying to convince him to, like, turn on, you know, Willem Dafoe's Rick Masters character. He's like, you want to pitch and go to a park, and, like, there's shit oh, like that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> there's, yeah. A, there's a lot of those, like, well, you want this? You want Do this? That. Get this, yeah. How about uh, this? <laughs> Fuck, dude. That's sick. Bring bring back that, whatever that is. Dude, it, it, it's just like. I'm going to start saying that, dude. Every, dude. Everything. Oh, yeah, you want that? You get fucking get this. You want a DCP? <laughs> go Deluxe. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> uh, but, like, the the other thing is, like, having done Manhunter back in February, the other quintessential William L. Peterson, like, role, is how vastly different they are from each other. Yeah. Like, it's very cerebral, and, like, he's, like, losing his fuck... I mean, he's out of his He's out of his mind in this movie, but then in Manhunter, he's out of his mind, too, but he's, like on the verge of a mental breakdown collapse and he's just like holding it together. And it's mm-hmm. like, it just makes me just, I don't know. I feel like he, I know he had CSI and CSI was a huge fucking oh, TV show. Okay. Culture hit. Like basically he took his Manhunter character and like maybe didn't make him as like on the verge of like, I could be a serial killer too. But like, you know, he had a good career with that. Mm-hmm. And, but I, I just kind of feel like between those two movies, like he should have had like, a career of some sort. He should have been like in other action movies or like, I think he was in thief. He was in thief. He was a bartender in yeah. thief. He didn't have a big role, but he was, but, in he, thief. but he didn't do much else. No, uh, he, film wise. No, nah, I mean, he's in stuff. He's in that Mark Wahlberg movie fear. I think he plays the dad. Uh, Nicole forever. Nicole. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He's in that. And the, but it's just like, I feel like maybe because of my love for those two movies, I'm just biased. I feel like he could have been in like other yeah. Michael Mann movies. Or he's like, great. He could have been in fucking heat. I mean, actually I'll say this, like the way Tom Cruise looks in collateral mm-hmm. reminds me of how William Peterson looked in Manhunter. Okay. And I just always felt like it's like, I wonder what that would have been like if William Peterson instead of Tom Cruise. I mean, I probably movie wouldn't have got made because of the time or whatever, but like, I don't know. It's just like, there's just two performances that have just, Different levels, different completely. But I always like associate the movies together, probably because they came out a year apart, you know? Okay. But I think he's phenomenal in this movie. Um, the other, we should talk about fucking um, Woman of Foe, who's fantastic in this movie. Yeah. And whereas, like, Peterson's playing a villain hero, in a way, Defoe's playing a hero villain or whatever. He's not really a bad guy. He's actually really likable. Yeah, true. He's like, you he know, he's a misunderstood artist trying to make a little cash. Yeah, I, I, I feel <laughs> like he's doing the counterfeiting to supplement his lifestyle. Yeah, he's a starving artist. Yeah, I, I think if like he, and that, but I think he's a perfectionist. And like, because you see, like the first time you really meet him, he's fucking grabbing a painting, nailing it or stapling it to his fucking wall and just torturing it. Yeah. 
like nothing's good enough. Like he's trying to like achieve some higher art. And I guess like to live that lifestyle, you got to print that money. Yeah. And like, I don't know. He's just so good in it. It's like weirdly like, it's kind of an understated performance in a way. I mean, it's, you know, whereas like how brash fucking Peterson is like, he's on the other end of the spectrum. He's cold. He's calculating. He's methodical. It's like everything he has is like planned out to a T and he has a backup plan if something doesn't work out. And like, there's just little nuances with him, like how he works with like um, Dean Stockwell's lawyer character, and then of course like his relationship with Deborah Fewer's character, who's like I guess a bisexual dancer, and like they're making like porn movies, and then like here I brought you over this other girl kind of thing. It's just like it, it just seems like if it was a movie just based on him as an artist, and he was also counterfeiting, that movie would work. Mm-hmm. If like his whole thing is like, man, I just want to make art, but I have to counterfeit. Like, if that was the whole narrative, there's no fucking Secret Service. I think that movie just works on its own. I mean, he's just great in it. And, like, there's some great sequences when, like, the different lawyer, but there's another hippie lawyer that basically snitched on fucking John Totoro's character and got him thrown in jail. Mm -hmm. And, like, the setup of, like, sending Fuhrer's character to go seduce him, and Mm -hmm. then they go get his money, and then they end up having to kind of whack him. Yep. I mean, it, the way it's set up, and it's like the rain and all that, and it's just like, when does it rain in L.A.? But, like, that's, a, I, that's one thing I do want to mention about this movie. As much as it's called To Live and Die in L.A., it should be To Live and Die in L.A. County. Yeah. You're you're definitely stretching, like, you're in Pasadena, and, like, mm-hmm. it's like, you're, I, obviously downtown plays an effect, but, like, yeah, it's not really, like, you don't see the Hollywood end of it. But that's fine, because that's not just all L.A. is. It's, like... Get to see a lot of the sites. Get to see the desert. Get to see where nice places where people live. You know, get to see a little bit of everything. Um, the other character I want to kind of pinpoint is John Pankow's character is John Volvich. He actually got the role because he was recommended by William L. Peterson because I guess they were doing theater or whatever in Chicago. And I think they have really good chemistry together. Yeah. And it's definitely like good cop, bad cop dynamic to the point where like... You know, his Volkovich is like, he's he's kind of like the guy that's like, he would be in the movie where like everything's going bad and he's trying to fix everything, but just keeps getting worse and worse. Yeah. And really like the the thing that's making it worse is just his partner. (laughs) I think I've ever seen uh, Totoro this young. Oh, yeah. John Totoro in it. Is this one of his first roles? Yeah, it's one of his first roles too. Like him as like the, I guess he's the counterfeit mule. Mm -hmm. And it's just like. Dude, I do want to talk that fucking L.A., the LAX fucking sequence. Yeah. It's like having flown a lot in the last couple of years. Like, it's like, damn, airports were different then. You could just like, you can go pay cash at a fucking booth. You can get a, like a, you know, plane ticket like the day of. What is that shit? Does anyone do that anymore? Is anyone like, I'm going to show up at the airport and buy a ticket? I don't know. But like, the basically, they catch Totoro passing some funny money at the airport and they have a chase sequence i think my understanding is freaking was shooting rehearsals because he didn't want to miss anything like he didn't rehearse beforehand but he's like all right we'll do it run through it one time but we're gonna roll camera and like there's a bit in this movie when the airport when peterson's chasing john Totoro's character he goes run you know they have that like what do they call that that moving moving sidewalk thing yeah people mover or whatever people mover yeah. yeah and he runs in the center of it to chase him like he wasn't supposed to do that they had asked and lax said no you can't do it 
because of safety and you know kind of kind of things you would be doing to me like you're like oh can't put Deanna in a trash can for 30 minutes and then wheel her around yeah it's not safe <laughs> well they didn't want William Peterson to do that and Peterson's like just run camera I'm gonna fucking do it so they, <laughs> so they just did one take where he ran across there and then like that was it hell yeah but that whole like that whole sequence in the airport is pretty good, especially when he gets in the bathroom. He kicks in the door on the guy that's just taking a shit. Yeah. The guy's like, what are you doing? And then he just like, I mean, I guess the guy was still shitting because he didn't get up. Yeah. So Peterson had to figure out what Totoro is. But then like when he catches him, like Totoro's like throwing the suitcase at him. And it's like, he's got a, like Peterson's got a gun the whole time. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, it's just like the roughhousing in this movie. It's just like, it's, I don't, I don't know how you call it. It's not really fights, but it's just like, it's kind of just brawls. Yeah. And then, I mean, it's such a good sequence, especially when the airport security shows up and pulls the gun on Peterson and the guy's like, Secret Service, I'm stopping this man for counterfeiting. Like, it's just like, if I was a fucking, you know, airport cop and someone's telling me that shit, I'd be confused. Yeah. It's like, how do you react to that? No one in the world knows that Secret Service does anything except for protect the president. So every time, every single person is just confused. What? Yeah, because like, and then (laughs) Falkovich shows up and pulls the gun on the the cop and he's like, who are you? I'm Secret Service too. And then there's a guy in the background who's like, I just came to go pee. Yeah. Another another little great joke. Is the president here? What the fuck is going on? Exactly. (laughs) Another scene I really love in this movie is the scene where after Totoro gets caught... And he gets put in jail and like the exchange he has with Willem Dafoe in there. Where basically Dafoe, who's like they know he's a counterfeiter, showing up at the prison to talk to his mule. I mean, obviously they can't, you know, use any of that in court or whatever, but like I mean Totoro's got some fucking banger lines too. Grimes is the best lawyer in the state. It'll either be an appeal bond or the sentence reduction. And the check is in the mail, and I love you, and I promise not to come in your mouth. I'm doing everything I can. But he's got some great character quirks in there. He's, like, fucking pounding Pepto-Bismol because he's got an ulcer and, like, just all... I mean, he's just great in the movie, like, the fucking... When they try to shiv him in the fucking, like, yard at the fucking prison. Yeah. Like, he goes like he's going to be all tough, and then, like, the second they knock him down, he's like, ah, it's like, screaming, <laughs> like, <laughs> like, some fucking, something that would happen to him in, like, a Coen Brothers movie. Yeah. Dude, it's just, it's just great, but, like, I also love the conviction that, like, even though they tried to kill him, he won't snitch. That's commendable. There you go. Another thing I want to talk about is, like, there's some, there's a really sexy sex scene in this movie. It's between, um, Peterson and, um... Flugel. Yeah. Darling Flugel in it. And it's like kind of unexpected because it's just like, and I think what I like freaking had said about it, he's just like, I just told him like, make it real. And it's just like this weirdly tender scene, especially where after they're done and she's like, Hey, you going to pay me for your, the tip I gave you. And he's like, that's where you get the one bread, fuck a baker line. Yeah. And then she's like, what happens if I don't give you more information? I'll have your parole revoked. Like some weird dick power move on her. It's a sex scene that's really tender. It's not graphic. It just It's like the scene from the room. Yeah, but it's not like the scene from the room. I don't see him throwing fucking flowers on her. There's no some R&B song kicking up. And then it's not repeated later in the movie because... The gr- that's what I think of whatever... If you would just ever say it's tender. It's just like, oh, it just must be like the room. <laughs> I mean... 
I mean, it's just like the way it's kind of just set up and played out. It's just like it's 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 dare I say romantic, where it's like it's not. I mean, I'm trying. It's not like the fucking showgirls one. Yeah, is what I'm trying to get at. That's tender. That's <laughs> that might be tendered on someone's limbs after flapping around that fucking hot tub or whatever. Or pool, or whatever it was in the movie. Another thing I really like about this movie is just how freaking stages everything. It's just like he's just he's directing stuff. Obviously, he's got things planned out he wants to do, but he just kind of like sets up the frame and just tells the actors go to town. That's that's one thing that I I was curious about. Um, I you know I've seen a a lot of freaking movies at this point, but I I don't I don't personally know what makes a, a freaking film a freaking film. It it's kind of weird because like when I, I when I think of a freaking film, I just think about him quintessentially, and like I've never thought about it in like terms like you know if someone says Robert Altman, mm-hmm. I think about like the fucking like the zoom lens moving around. I think about like overlapping dialogue and stuff like stylistic. Sort of like when you think about Martin Scorsese, you think about lots of flashy camera moves and how it's edited and like that kind of stuff. I guess we're freaking and. Not on the Monday when I watched, but on Friday when I watched it with you, I kind of noticed things that kind of like seemed like maybe maybe there were conscious callbacks to the French Connection, like the way it starts on a like a building that kind of zooms out to open up the shot as people were walking in the frame and stuff like that. And I think he's always kind of had like the way he shoots like inserts or close ups. It, it, it's just like it's not like. It's like an attitude it carries through. Okay. Like, I I don't know how to explain. Like, you know, when I watch, you can feel that the guy that made The Exorcist also made this movie. Okay. Like, I, it's like some instinctual, like, high-end fucking, like, I don't know, cinephile shit or archerism or whatever's in it. It's just like, because it's not like as a parent, like, stylistic tick that where people can, like, pick apart or, like, parody or whatever. It's just like this uniform, like, just being in sync and knowing where to place the camera, when the cut, and what you're building towards. It's like this intensity and, like, this attitude with it. Okay. And it even carries into, like, his, like, things like Bug or Hunted and stuff like that. Even the later stuff kind of has it. It's just like an energy, really. Okay. It's, you know, again, it's like, you know, if you think Brian De Palma, you can think of, like, you know, Split Diopter shot and, like, things like that. But, Mm -hmm. like... You know, freaking doesn't have a stylistic tick that like in the same vein, but it's just like the the way he works. It's just like I think it's just the how he makes it as a cohesive film. And at the end of the day, it's just like yeah, like I watch Cruising, and like you can tell the man who made Cruising made this movie, mm-hmm. even if there's nothing that ties it together other than like you know law enforcement or whatever. Yeah, like that might be the only tie in between the two movies, but it's just like something, just something there. Another thing I noticed about in this movie, lots of groin kicks. Okay. There's a few. Like, actually, I think Peterson gets kicked in the nuts twice in this movie. Totoro gets him one time. They go to the hospital when he okie dokes him. And then, like, the undercover um, FBI agent, like, kicks him in the nuts when he's trying to get away. Yeah. It's like, man, there's a lot. I mean, I guess maybe that was a trend in the 80s. People getting kicked in yeah, the nuts. Yeah, that's groin. true. It's kind of a trend. Yeah. It's, you know, quicksand, groin kicks. Yeah. I don't know. I I don't know why I wrote that down as a note to discuss. It's just like, man, people are getting kicked in the balls in this fucking movie. Yeah. But that kind of leads into, which I think leads into the big scene, which this is going to, which I really want to talk about because this is one of the things we talked about right after the movie when we were like heading back. So they kid, 
basically Peterson's character's informant that he's like, you know, shacking up with from time to time. Tells him about like a Asian man that's coming in from San Francisco to buy stolen diamonds. And the reason why they're hitting this guy is because they're trying to like do an undercover sting on Masters and get him to like do the counterfeiting stuff so they can finally catch him. And what happens is like they need front money. And, you know, Secret Service, their their head played by a really excellent Robert Downey Sr., who just like the perfect like I'm over this shit kind of job. It's like, why am I dealing with you kind of thing? So they won't get the money. So they have they decide to rob this dude who they don't they think is just a regular, like illegal thing, to get the money so they can have front money to go fucking get Defoe's master's character. And it gets botched. I mean, they get the money, but then, like, all of a sudden, all these people come out, and they have a sniper there that's, like, shooting at them. And then, I heard you laugh during this, is when, like, a fucking car hits the, like, sniper's car, and the other guy's not paying attention, pulls the trigger, and shoots the fucking, like, poor guy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, it is ridiculously set up. I don't know if it's played for a laugh, but it is, like... Yeah, but... I don't think it was. Yeah, it... <laughs> I mean, it, it is kind of funny just how it plays out. Mm-hmm. So this all leads into, which is a fantastic car chase. This car chase was like, this was something like was talked about a lot. And just like, because it's basically what eventually happens. They get on the, I believe the 710 freeway and they're driving the wrong way into oncoming traffic to get away from being chased. And there's a little bit of like French connection throwback because they're in like they're driving like downtown LA back in the warehouses or like where those things are and they're like weaving through like tractor trailers and stuff like that. So, but like it just like it gets really intense. And like again, when I was there on Monday, people were having anxiety while watching it. And I think it's a really spectacular thing. And it was like put together by stunt coordinator Buddy Joe Hooker, longtime stunt guy. He's been in everything from like Messiah Evil, The Conversation. And he was Peter Chris's double one Kiss Meets the Phantom. Hmm. Which yeah, will tie yeah. back to Detroit Rock City, which was also screen part of Mayhem. Or Mayhem, sorry. I need to correct that for you. So basically, Freakin told Buddy Joe Hooker is like, if this scene does not beat the French Connections car chase, it won't go in the film. I'll just cut it. Well, I heard it took them six days to do this car scene. Well, I mean, it would have to. Yeah. And like, I forget where they shot it. It wasn't in L.A. because there's no way you can shut a free down freeway down to like do something like that. Mm-hmm. I think it was a certain stretch where they like had a couple hours each day to kind of shoot it, like off the. I don't want to say off the grid, but like where it wouldn't impede and make traffic more traffic jam but like free um william peterson like he didn't do all the driving but he did a good portion of the driving so when you see like um volkovich in the back seat like having like the freak out he was actually fucking scared because peterson's fucking driving the car on him right on i mean it's just really intense and like there's a couple bits where like they're when they um first are getting away when they think they're getting away like all you hear is like the heartbeat like, it's, there's a really nice, like, sound design choice in there where it's just, like, breathing and heartbeat. Actually, no, it's before that. Sorry. It's when they have the the undercover agent. They don't realize the undercover agent in the car with them. And just all you hear is, like, in, like, the heartbeat. There's some really nice setups and, like, building up the, ramping up the intensity of that scene. But, you know, I think it's a phenomenal car chase. And then you hit me with. That's fucking, that's kind of bored, dude. I <laughs> was kind of bored. Like, car chases just. I don't know. I was just watching it, and everyone else in the theater was like all fucking into it. 
and and it was the the more subdued like Friday crowd, but still, it's just like once the the car scene happened, like everybody was like locked the fuck in, and I'm more locked into just watching them, and I'm just kind of like, what? Like what? Like why is this exciting? Car chases don't do it. It's for just you. not doing a fucking thing for me. Have you ever seen a car chase that you've been into? I mean, not really. If Tarkovsky did a car chase, would you be into it? Yeah, but I mean, like, <laughs> like what is that car going like three miles an hour? <laughs> Maybe the closest that you would probably like. I don't know if you ever seen John Luke Godard's Weekend. I have not. There's a long, long one single shot thing where it's going through a traffic jam. And it's like really famous for the movie. That might be your kind of car chase. Yeah. I mean, it's like, uh, I mean, it's obviously they work their asses off on it. Like it's, it's, it's kind of crazy, but at the same time, I'm just watching it going like, when is this? What? I honestly was like, when is this part going to be over? <laughs> like, this is just, all right, like get to the, get to the next scene, please. You and, know? I mean, the, the next scene is when they're like, it's the next day and they're back at their secret service headquarters. And like, you know, they're all looking looking a little disheveled and they're like that's when they find out that like it was fbi agent they got killed Mm -hmm. which is like but it was just like the way the scenes played out is like it's hilarious because like peterson's just like deadpan like fuck it don't matter got that money Mm -hmm. and his partner's like oh my god we're fucked yeah (laughs) i mean that's just how they play it um not to get too much in like the plot or whatever but i do want to talk about like something that happens in this movie that's kind of shocking because if you come in cold you don't expect it and that's william william peterson's chance character fucking getting aced yeah i definitely did not expect that yeah because it's toward the end they make the they give the front money the masters he prints them their money they're getting ready to do the exchange and then they think they're going to arrest him and his like homie bodyguard sidekick dude pulls out a shotgun like i i I think Again, because the way Defoe's character masters is like methodical, like he already knew they were trying to set him up, so he was pre- prepared for the double setup. And then just like, you know, like thing is everything's chaotic, and then fucking, fucking Peterson gets shot, like in the face, and it's just like, and it happens in a way that like, you don't know how to react because there's so much going on. It's like the other guy gets shot. It's just like Volkovich is the only dude left, and like. You know, Defoe Masters is fucking out, and it's just like, man, dude's trying to like wake up his part. It's like, it's sad. Mm-hmm. It's like walking in and finding like, you know, a loved one, like trying to wake up someone that's not going to wake up. And like, you know, obviously he's shot, but like, it's kind of heartbreaking. Yeah. And like, I feel like a lesser director couldn't stick that landing because it's so shocking, so unexpected. However, they they're really smart about it. They let, you know, they kind of give that moment of decompress, and then Volkovich goes after Masters, and you mm. get that showdown at the end, which, I don't know, it's pretty, it's pretty, pretty cinematic. You got, like, a fucking warehouse on fire, burning all the, like, all, you know, all the counterfeiting stuff, the printing press, the, like, the plate maker, all that shit's up in flames. And then, like, you get a showdown, and, like, you also get to see, because the way Volkovich is, like, set up in this movie, he's, like, I don't want to say he's weak, but he's, like, more by the books. Yeah. And he's kind of scared about like being put out of his comfort zone and he gets forced to be out of his comfort zone a lot. So when he kills Defoe at the end and then Defoe had, well, not Defoe, whoever the stunt man was has a really heroic fucking firewalk in this movie. Mm-hmm. It's a, 
it's a fucking it's hot yeah how do you feel about firewalks it's pretty cool okay pretty cool like it better than car chases i mean it's like you know you get like three seconds you know it's a guy on fire for three seconds it's pretty cool <laughs> what if tarkovsky did a firewalk like quickly throw a blanket over him and you know so it's it that's that's pretty sick yeah okay uh yeah I mean, it's clearly. I'm a, into it. Yeah, it's clearly at one point it's not Defoe, and like yeah. it's just it's it's a stunt dude doing a yeah. firewalk. I don't know, but the thing after this is that the way Volkovich's character arc is, he goes from being kind of the dare I say wimpy, like you know, by the books dude, and he basically well, becomes Chance. Yeah, he becomes Chance, right? Totally, but it's but in effect he he's now been turned into the bad cop as well. Yeah, he, it's like he got corrupted. Mm-hmm. Like all that stuff. And it's it kind of like it it makes it better. Because like the Darlene Flugel character, like she thinks she's getting out of it and he's and he's like, "Nope, you work for me now." Yeah. And then it has that flashback of like her and like when Peterson was like the sex scene where it's that close up of him like just kind of staring at her. Like, it cuts back to that. And then, like, that's kind of the end of the movie. I, I do want to mention there was an alternate ending shot for the movie where the studio's like, I don't know. Don't don't feel like, you know, you can kill Peterson's character. So they shot an ending where, like, basically, you know, they stop Masters, whatever, but then they get in trouble for all the fucking bad shit they did and they get transferred to, like, Antarctica mm. or something like that. It's right. somewhere desolate. And they're just like, oh, yeah, it's fun out here in the middle of nowhere. So that's the ending. And I guess the studio looked at that as like, yeah, just fucking kill him. Hell yeah. I mean, I think it's a better ending because it's just like, you know, you get invested in both like Defoe and Peterson in this movie for different reasons. And like just the unexpectedness of it. And it's just like, you know, I think it's it's good that it happened at the end. And then like as it's wrapping up, you just see the darker undertones of what has been set up. Mm hmm. It's really fucking brilliant. So one thing we haven't talked about yet, and I've touted this, is the Wang Chung soundtrack. Not a big Wang Chung fan, you know, but like I really love this soundtrack. I don't know what your thoughts are. It's good. It's good. It's cool. I mean, like the 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 City of Angels theme, which is that thing that plays a lot. It plays during the opening credits. Plays during the counterfeiting montage. It's the it's a fucking great song. Mm-hmm. It's a great fucking musical cue. Right on. There's some other thing. There's there's a couple times where it, like it definitely sounds like some pretty hate machine. Nine yeah. Nine Nine but it's, it's pretty, probably pretty hate machine and like with sympathy uh, ministry. Yeah, it's like that kind of era, whatever. I, it's that, cool. It's like proto industrial, you know. Yeah, and it's just like you know industrial pop. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that's what it. I think it's probably because of the same kind of synthesizers and samplers and shit they're using mm-hmm. to make that soundtrack is probably the same stuff that. Yeah, I mean, that, same era. Yeah, you know? I mean, way before. Not way, but like a few years before Pretty Hate Machine. Yeah. I mean, what was Pretty Hate Machine? 89? 90? It's either 89 or 91. Yeah, it's something there. And this this movie was like 80, yeah, 85. Yeah. So, 85, hell of a year for films. And when this movie came out, it wasn't like a massive hit. That's around when With Sympathy came out, I think. Hmm. Interesting. Maybe, maybe there's an influence. No one's ever brought up, but it's a good point. But I was going to say, 85 was an interesting year for films. You know, there's a lot of beloved movies that came out that I'm not big on and a bunch of interesting genre stuff. When this movie came out, like, it wasn't, it was not a 
it was it was a moderate hit. It made its money back and made some, you know. But when it was released, it debuted at number two behind Death Wish Three. Which I don't know, just I think it's funny that like at any point that Death Wish Three was the number one movie at the box office. It's pretty weird. I mean, I guess it would be because then they made four and five after it, so. But yeah, I don't know. Closing thoughts on To Live and Die in LA. Pretty good. This <laughs> is pretty good. I'd give it a I would rate it a three on Letterboxd. I give this shit a five. Yeah, it seems like everybody else does. But I guess it's like, what do you want out of a movie? And that's the end question. I'm not even saying you're wrong. Yeah. I think I think you giving it a three is like, I mean, maybe maybe chance get being getting shot kind of pushes up to a four almost. Like I think it it kind of it shows that the, like little things like that um, show that it's a little smarter than than I'm actually giving it credit for, and you know it it, it it's a little more special than than a lot of other film crime films i've seen with like crazy car chases and whatever whatever you know what i mean i, I think that this is definitely a, a a step ahead of all those for sure so i mean i I'll, I'll actually justify my five and i i think what it is is just how brazen and ballsy it is mm-hmm. like you know it's 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 not like it's coming out in the peak of like stallone and schwarzenegger and things like that you okay. know maybe a when when did Terminator come out? Terminator came out in eighty four, right? Something like that. Maybe eighty five? I don't know. Okay. I'm trying to think when that came well, you know, whatever. It was coming like this movie came out when the like big action movies, big budget action movies. And the fact that it's like a very concise, dare I say low budget movie that does not feel like a low budget movie. Mm-hmm. Like at no point do you think you're watching like, you know, what be kind of the equivalent of like an indie film. Just budget-wise. But it's just like, it's got great actors. It's got great performances. Really interesting soundtrack. And I just think because of who Freakin' is and just his just attitude and like how he just, in a way, the way he directs the movie is how fucking Chance carries himself in the movie. Yeah. It's just like, who gives a fuck? I'm just doing this and if you don't like it, tough shit. And I think that just carries through the movie. I did, it's my favorite freaking movie. And like a lot of people are like, well, how? it's like, you know, I, I love French Connection. I'm fine with Exorcist or whatever. It's, you know, I know I should love it, but it's just like, I, I think at this point, I'm just like, it, it's, it doesn't interest me. Like, you know, Sorcerer interests me. Like fucking Cruising interests me. Because I think he's, it's not that he didn't do interesting things in Exorcist. I just feel like he was expanding upon him. And like you know, he's just a really great. So un, it's, un, not, it's not his fault that The Exorcist turned into this big cultural thing. Yeah, you know what I mean. Like as far as just being a film goes, yeah. it you know it, there's probably something about you know what happened with it culturally that that affects your opinion on it. I would say. Yeah, I mean, I'm just making the assumption there, but I mean it is. Know. But it's just like I guess the thing that I always find most interesting in filmmakers is like not their not when they're at their height their best movie or their most beloved movie it's the films that they made under like duress or like you know not under ideal circumstances obviously when he made the french connection like i'm not french connection sorry when he made the exorcist Mm -hmm. you know it was based on a best-selling book they were investing money in it you know he was a hot director coming into it so he basically you know had all the resources pulled into it. 
Whereas, like, for this movie, obviously, it was a lower budget. He had to shoot fast. He, like, he, in order to make it good, he knew what he had to do to make it good on what he had. Those are the movies I'm drawn to. Like, you know, my favorite Scorsese movies, After Hours. And because it was, like, you know, he's coming off of, like, he made some expansive, like, high-budget movies that are beloved now, but maybe didn't do well at the time, like Raging Bull and stuff. So it's, like, he's working in an economic sense. You know what I mean? Yeah. So he's like, this is the materials, this is what I'm working for, and it's like, how do I create the energy to make this? It's that kind of stuff. It's like, you know, it's you know, it's going to seem weird when I say Evil Dead 2, and the reason why I say that is like Sam Raimi was coming off Crime Wave, which was a fucking massive flop, and was going to pretty much kill his filmmaking career. So when he got the opportunity to do Evil Dead 2, he just went, he just went fucking nuts. That's why it's all stylized, there's the crazy camera work, and like, you just, like, you had something to prove. And I like filmmakers that have something to prove, you know? Sort of like Lynn Ramsey, who's one of my, like, top five dead or alive right now making films. Wish she would make more. It's just, like, there's something that, there, she has something to say and something to prove. And, like, regardless of what the subject is or whatever, it just has this thing that's, like, an intangible thing that just drives it, that makes that movie just, like, something that's memorable, something that's... You have to see some energy, and I think, like, freaking had that on this movie. And, you know, again, Exorcist, masterpiece. Not knocking it, but, like, there's something to live and die in L.A. and just, like, what it took to make that happen and just how, like, to raise it above. Because, like, if you put another director on that movie, I don't think it would be... I It could be easily be a two-star movie. It could be, like, a laughable crime thriller, like, all oh, secrets. Like, it could be handled in the dopiest way possible. But it's the conviction it's made. Yeah. And that's why I love this movie. Right on. But we're going to take a quick commercial break here. But when we come back, it's going to be time for a read, watch, and listen here on the Cinematic Void Podcast. Eat, drink, and be merry at the Renaissance Pleasure Fair as more than 1,000 brilliantly costumed performers take you into the lusty world of Shakespeare's England. The fair is open weekends and Memorial Day now through June 2nd, 9 a.m. to 6 p.m. Paramount Ranch, Agoura Hills. Ventura Freeway to the Chesbro exit. Information and charge by phone, 213-654-1700. Raise a toast. Come celebrate. What you're actually looking at is a dawn. The dawn of the new summer nights at SeaWorld. From 5.30 every night, we'll be lighting up your evenings with spectacular music, special Shamu shows, floating boat parades, and fireworks. It's everything you like about SeaWorld in the daytime and more. Experience summer nights at SeaWorld. Sunsets will never be the same. The preceding program was pre-recorded. Welcome back. It's now time for... On the Cinematic Void Podcast, where we talk about all the things we've been reading, watching, and or listening to since the last time we recorded a podcast. All right, Nick. I know you've been busy, but has there been anything you've been reading, watching, and or listening to? Uh, I haven't really been reading anything. I've had a busy week. I, I Fuck, I haven't been doing much, man. Uh, Watch-wise, I recently watched uh, Fat Girl, directed by Catherine Brilat. It's it's French. It's French. Yeah. There's like the T's probably silent. What do those L's do? I don't I know. No, I have no idea. But uh, Fat Girl from 2001. It's a uh, 
Janice title, so I watched it on the Criterion channel because I know I'm not going to be able to catch too many of the Bleak Week screenings. Um, and this one's been on the list for a while. Um, and it's fucking brutal, man. Uh, I don't, I, I don't like it. I don't like this movie. This movie made me upset. Is was it because of the choices or like the? I mean, we won't talk about if it's the ending. We can't. I don't want to spoil that. Yeah, I mean, I guess since we're not like doing a deep dive, I guess there's no sense in spoiling the movie. But like, yeah, the fucking the the ending just completely ruined the whole thing for me. Uh, for one, for sure, like the ending ruined it for me. But I I, I wasn't exactly loving it before then, you know. Um, I don't know. I don't know what I was expecting, but it wasn't anything like what I thought it was going to be. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, men are awful. It's but you know what? I was still thinking, and, I, and I, actually, I I should have done this yesterday. But I was gonna still just like order it and just probably have it here today and just be like, I fucking hated this movie. But like, look, I bought it anyway. <laughs> this is a Criterion title and it's fucked up. But I mean, uh, I would wait. Like, because... I almost feel like I was still owning it. You know? Yeah, I don't think it's hit Blu-ray yet. So, or has it? I really think there's a Criterion Blu-ray of this. Oh, yeah. I, 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 I'm like ninety percent sure. I feel like it, meh, if it's not, then it's gonna be out soon. If it's on the Criterion Channel, because like I, yeah. I got the Criterion Channel because I want to be able to watch stuff on my TV, but they don't yeah. offer the, the option to like. It's not an app on my TV, so it's, it's, it's like, on mine. You got a better TV than I do, then. Is Roku, homie? Yeah, I ain't got no fucking Roku. Fucking what you got? This is the shittiest kind. Yeah, I just got regular ass TV. And it, had every, it has every fucking streaming service on there. It's got fucking Tubi. It does not have Criterion because it's like, I can't watch it on my TV. I don't want to watch the Criterion on my laptop. Yeah. So I got my seven-day free trial and canceled it. I actually... Can you, can, the, can you cast it? Can you air airdrop it? Yeah, but I, no, I don't feel like doing that. Dang. Man. I, I want to have my laptop screen shut and just watch my TV, man. Yeah. This is first world problems, like, yeah, <laughs> fully. But I, when I had one of the things I did watch because I hadn't, I, I mean, owned the DVD, but I rewatched Fat Girl because I knew it was coming up at Bleak Week and I watched yeah. it in a while. And like, I enjoy how fucked up it is. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. We, we can have more of an in depth discussion because, like, well, we actually did. Yeah. Outside of the podcast, but oh yeah, but uh, one last thing about Fat Girl before we move on. Uh, we got the print for Fat Girl, and for some reason, the cans say Cowboy Fat Girl. What? <laughs> and I thought that was really fucking strange. Um, so I, I actually grabbed a reel and looked at it myself and just looked at the tales, the title. I didn't actually uh, rewind all the way to the title card, but I just looked at the end and made sure it was the correct film. And like I say, I just watched it, so I know that it was. And that the English subtitles were there. So it should be the right print, but Cowboy Fat Girl, I Googled it, and uh, if you're at work, don't Google Cowboy <laughs> Fat Girl because <laughs> you just get nothing but porn. Um, but yeah, so I don't know why it's called that. Um, That's just there you go. Weird. It's really strange. Very much. <laughs> what? Yeah, man. Uh, fucking listen. I've just been listening to the new Incendiary record over and over. Change the way you think about pain on Closed Casket Records. It just came out, I think, officially last Friday. The whole record dropped. I just got the LP in the mail on fucking glow-in-the-dark vinyl. Uh, and it'll probably... I I think the prediction, it'll be my favorite record of the year. Just It's a fucking banger, dude. When we get to the 2023 favorites episode? Yeah, I think it's, it's definitely going to be on the list. Um, but yeah, I've just been listening to that a bunch. And I've uh, been throwing on Liquid Swords by the Jizza, also known as the greatest... Uh, rap record of all time according to me i won't argue it it's up there and then i uh, also been listening to a little bit of uh crime some san francisco's doomed hmm. uh some punk from the 70s they dress like cops they're <laughs> fucking awesome it's just filthy filthy awesome punk 
Um, that's it for me, man. All right, keeping so, it keeping it light this week. Keeping it light. Read. I want. I got tired of saying like, "Oh, fuck reading." I haven't read shit. So, um, my girlfriend Leslie got me this book for my birthday. It's called "The Devil in Massachusetts: A Modern Inquiry into the Salem Witch Trials." By Marion L. Starkey. Um, and by Modern, this book came out in the 1950s. So this is original press and has a really awesome cover, but it's like deteriorating because of how fucking old it is. That's so I gotta sick. be really careful. So I had to like take the cover. I need to get like, I know they have them out there because you can get them in libraries. So I'm fucking book, book cover protectors. Okay. I, I think get, you meant like get like a uh, you know turn like a big brown paper bag into a book cover like and no, no. Like, <laughs> <laughs> like we had to do for your math book yeah. and all that. <laughs> no, not for that. But like, I mean the 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 fucking book cover on it's fucking sick. It's just like it's fragile as shit. So it's like I was like I'm gonna I want I've been wanting to read it, but then I'm like scared to fuck up the cover because it's like it could literally just turn to dust if I'm not careful. So I had carefully removed it so I could start reading that book. Um, watch I watched from our friends at Cauldron Films their new release of Frankenstein 80 a movie that was shot in 1972 oh, nice. nowhere, nowhere near 1980 ahead of its time it's, it is ahead of its time it's a basically a, a very very ultra sleazy Italian exploitation flip on the Frankenstein monsters mythos there's definitely a scene where the Frankenstein's monster goes and buys a hooker like, is this is he supposed to be in the future or like is, no, he no, spo- no, is it like why just, is there any reason why it's called that no or, okay no it's just may, maybe they felt like a re- <laughs> frankenstein in the future <laughs> fuck, that's sick dude i mean i mean this frankenstein does <laughs> shit that you what if frankenstein went to the future that's a great movie <laughs> there you go actually <laughs> frankenstein frankenstein 2060 or whatever but like this this movie's fucking ridiculous. Like, Bill, the dude builds a Frankenstein and then he goes and buys hookers. And I mean, not just picks up hookers, like pulling out cash and paying the hooker. And I was like, I, I just laughed for like five minutes at that scene. Uh, I, I hadn't seen the movie, but I've heard the soundtrack and the soundtrack's fucking incredible. So definitely, if you like your Italian movie sleazy and trashy, look no further than Frankenstein 80. Had a couple virtual date nights with my girlfriend we watched borgman on shutter which is i'd say kind of parasite meets funny games oh okay it's a danish movie it's like i don't i liked it i don't know if i loved it definitely thought a little bit about it afterwards but like it it was interesting and like i i don't know if it fully worked for me but it was like i was you know glad to see it cool the other thing we watched was the other side of underneath which is um it's in it's part of Severn's um, House of Psychotic Women box set, which I have sitting on my shelf, but it's just easier to do virtual date night if we both watch Shudder at the same time. So you watch it on there. It's directed by Jane Arden, who's a famous like feminist like avant-garde theater you know, director and kind of stuff. And it's definitely it's based on a play of hers, and it does feel like a film play. There's some really interesting stuff, but I feel like every scene just kind of like drags on like a good two to five minutes longer than needs to and like you know everything's like oh i'm really into this and just like okay we can kind of move on i didn't love it i didn't hate it but i just like i don't think i'm gonna revisit it and it's like it has nothing to do with any of the topic stuff it's just i don't know i don't think i may watch a film theatrical play type person Mm -hmm. it reminded me there's a movie called marat sod or um yeah marat sod it's um it's kind of another one of those kind of like avant-garde theater plays filmed based on, like, Marquise de Sade being in jail and stuff like that, it kind of plays out the same way. It's just very, very theatrical. Mm-hmm. 
Whereas, like, I think if I had seen this, the other side of underneath and, like, an actual theater setting, I think I might have enjoyed it more. Because then, like, you're in the theater. It can breathe more. Like, scenes can go longer or shorter or whatever. It's just, like, I think I think the translation gets a little lost just between the different disciplines. That To me. I, someone else could watch it and be like, oh, no, fuck that. It's like, this is brilliant. I saw lots of four- and five-star reviews on Letterboxd for it, and I'm just like, two. Yeah. And I'm not trying to be a hater. It's just like I, I, I had it at three. As the movie kept going, I kept knocking half stars off. The fact that in the back of my mind, as we're watching, I'm just like, how am I gonna rate this on Letterbox? Yeah, it's probably not a good sign. Because mm-hmm. usually, like, I don't think about that until the very end. But like when that popped in my, head, it just I don't know. I was looking at the uh, porthole of the theater the other day, mm-hmm. and uh, when the credits started rolling on <laughs> on a film. I saw like multiple phones pop up like instantly in the theater oh, and like everybody's jumping on Letterboxd instantly like rating it. You're just like, man, what if, what have we become? We're all we're all just monsters, dude. It's clout chasing. <laughs> it, it really is. Um, the other thing I watch and watch this on my own is like I was kind of morbidly curious. It's a documentary on Netflix, Trainwreck, Woodstock '99. It's like a three part kind of mini series documentary series because I remember when this shit happened, popped off. Dude, it, I mean, it's kind of interesting because, like, for some, I started confusing this with Woodstock 94 or whatever it was, mm-hmm. which was the one where it was, like, Nine Inch Nails and Green Day played and, yeah. like... Lots and, of mud. Yeah, lots of mud. And then, like, I guess that, that one was, like, well-liked, like, the original Woodstock 68 for whatever reason. Because apparently this one was made just to make money. So, like, you know, everything was, like, super expensive, water... And just, like, it was at the peak of, like frat boy aesthetic at Woodstock. And plus, like, look at the bands they're playing. Like, they would have, like, James Brown open in the morning or Willie Nelson, and then, like, it'd be corn. Yeah. And Limp Bizkit and shit like that. They showed the fucking corn footage, and it's just like, dude, I, I'm not a corn fan, but, like, that shit scared me, that fucking, like, when you see a mosh pit or, like, a just, like, this unison of people just, like, going, going off... But I, I just wa- just watching this sea of fucking people that aren't clearly weren't in that music. It's not their demographic, and just like this unison of like unison conscious of we're like we're gonna go fucking crazy, and it's like two hundred fifty thousand people, whatever it is. It's just like yo. Well, fuck. But what's worse, two hundred fifty thousand people going off that don't like corn, or two hundred fifty thousand people going off that do like corn? That's a valid point. I don't. I I feel like I don't know, dude. I was I grew up in a time where you made fun of people that like corn, and I don't understand this newfound love for fucking new metal that ever uh, like younger people seem to have, and like now people our age are even trying to defend. Like, bro, we were there. No, we were there. Stunk. That shit was dumb. <laughs> like, if anyone tried to like, hey man, you you should be cool. You would get along with this person. It's like they had a corn shirt. Like, nah, dude. But but either way, the, the my main takeaway from this documentary is like. People spend a lot of money to be in a shitty environment. It's like no one learned because then Fire Festival happened like what twenty years later or whatever, and like it's the same bullshit. It, it, the only difference is the concert didn't happen. The fucking yeah. anarchy was just like being stuck on that fucking island or whatever it was, Epstein's Island. <laughs> <laughs> but either way, it's just like man, I'm not. I I don't like music festivals. But I remember that when that was going off and just like it, you know, it felt like some fucking apocalypse now shit. Yeah. But then it's just like the dorkiest fucking white people that overpaid to see fucking Willie Nelson and Corn at the same festival. 
just like I don't know. Yeah, it's just the 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 funniest thing I didn't realize is that after Corn played, Bush played after him. I saw Bush once. Are they good? Yeah, yeah. Bush are. I mean, it's not like oh my god, like act like they're my favorite band or anything, but like. Yeah, they were cool. I mean, I did see them at a stupid festival, but they were uh, they were the band that was playing right before the Ramones. So I I had to get up front f- during Bush to be up front during the Ramones, and uh, and it was tolerable. You know, there's there's some worse bands I've had to sit through to be able to be close to the band I wanted to see. You know, yeah. Um, and so it was fine. Uh, I, the Every, reason everything was Zen. Everything was Zen. I don't think so. But uh, the the one thing I didn't realize because they headlined over Corn and it, like. That's a that's a that's a world I like to live in. What Bush headlining over corn? Yeah. Well, the thing he, they did was like they actually cooled down the set because like people were just like all pumped up on listening to like people were all tangled up in their chain wallets. Yeah, I mean none of those fuckers had chain wallets. Like I don't know who these were like fucking people that just like they were listening to like NSYNC and Britney Spears and they overpaid to go to this shit. Do you know the stand-up comedian Big J Okerson? I just picture one. 100,000 Big J Okersons like all together in one place. I mean, I don't know, but I I, kind of get a vision of what you're getting at. Fingerless gloves, chain wallets. Oh, yeah, that, yeah. You know? I mean, yeah, but... Fingerless gloves in the summertime? Fuck. I mean, there's probably someone there. But, like, the thing about watching... (laughs) There's probably one guy. There's probably (laughs) at least five guys. Out out of the 250,000 people at this fucking shithole of a fucking festival. But, like, the, the thing I'll say about Bush is, like, you know... You can do something, you know, we, we make fun of tons of bands and music and people like Gavin Rosdale, regardless of what you think about Bush or not, actually did something commendable and decided to cool the crowd down and started with like a slower song. They play their hits and shit, but like they decided to deescalate like these fucking two, these fucking thousands of fucking idiots that were just like, oh, we can mosh for the first time ever kind of thing. And I was like, you know, shout out to them. Salute. Salute to you and James Brown. Why the fuck was James Brown playing Woodstock? Well, money. Yeah, let's let's be real. Money. Money. Cocaine ain't free. That's true. Was he, I think he would be past that by that point. Uh, what was that? You ever see that TV interview? Oh, yeah. I, that was before 99. Yeah, I mean, it's probably mid-80s, but hey. Uh, I know yeah. a lot of people that still haven't put that shit down. Well, you know, man, that's why coke rap's big again. But yeah, um, I guess we should move on to listen here. We talked way more about Woodstock '99 than ever planned in my entire life. It, it, I'm not saying the documentary is good. I just think it was interesting because, like, being like just remembered culturally when it happened. It's just like, but I think I mean that would I mean that Woodstock is mostly known for just like people getting raped and things like that. Like, oh yeah, and that's, that's what the yeah. It's know, just that's I, really what it's about. It, it's really about like that's like because you know that was. I think it was the first year Bush was in office and all that. And like, I think that was the beginning of the end of the American dream. Yeah. Woodstock 99 represented it. <laughs> it you might like literally, I, I might be overselling <laughs> it, but it's just like the fall, the fall of America really started at Woodstock 99. But anyway, as for listen, I've been revisiting some records by Denzel Curry. Excellent. Like, you know, musician, rapper, artist, whatever you call him. The, his latest album, which I guess came out last year, Melt My Eyes, Seed Your Future, which I liked, but like I didn't really connect with when it first came out. But now I'm going back, and it's like, I like it a lot. Cool. Also been hitting up Taboo again. And like, you know, some of the, 
I guess some of like, you know, the unlock thing he did with Kenny Beats and things like that. Just, yeah. I don't know. I, I think he's, I think he's criminally underrated, even though like he's got really hit songs. I didn't realize he had like platinum tracks. Hmm. Like I guess, um, Cloud Cobain's like a platinum single. Yeah. yeah. Which is just, just what, seemed... one of his songs was like such a big meme. It was, ago. it was ultimate, which like, yeah. which is only gold or at least was gold at the moment. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, cause like, I, I guess I, we talked a little bit about it. We ended up cutting it because it just was too ridiculous. We're talking about streaming and all that. It's like, I don't know how people get platinum or gold records anymore because it's all based on streaming. Mm-hmm. But just like, you know, dude's got some hit songs and it's just, I feel like he's just like kind of under the radar and like he's, I think he's experimenting in a way that's really interesting and like, you know, trying to push the movement, so to speak, or push the art form where yeah. it's like, you know, there's a lot of Coke rap that I listen to and I love it and all, but I just, I feel like, He's got some deeper musically he's pushing forward or like trying to get out. And like, I'm kind of excited to see him keep doing it. And I just hope, you know, get his, get his due, you know, get that fucking number one record or whatever. I mean, it's, you know, we were talking earlier. It's like, there's a plenty, you know, the popular, like the Drake, like Kendrick and Cole stuff. It's like, I'm not into that stuff. Mm -hmm. Whereas I feel like Denzel's very conscious of what he's doing, but he's like, it's not falling in that same trap. It's like, you know, not, I don't love every song to death, but I think like he, he's got a craftsmanship to it where it's like, he's got bars and he knows how to put together tracks. Even if he's doing trap stuff or he's doing more like boom bap or whatever, you know? Mm -hmm. So anyway, also been listening to new incendiary record, change the way you think about pain. Rager. Been digging it. I also decided to revisit hum. You prefer an astronaut. And then, because I realized that first song, Big Dipper on there, or Little Dipper is what it's called, is actually Knife Party by the Deftones. Oh, nice. <laughs> I saw, like, the, what was it? There was that meme. Someone posted a meme about it or something. I saw it online. I was like, oh, yeah, I guess they are the same song, just different speeds. Mm-hmm. can't remember where I saw it. it. It was a meme on Instagram, so. Yeah, Home is just the less horny Deftones, really. Yeah. I think that's a fair assessment. But, like, I that record's fucking still... Oh, yeah. Incredible. And because of that, I also listened to a bunch of Deftones, Deftones stuff. I actually went back to the albums I don't really listen to, and I still don't know if I like them, like Around the Fur and like yeah. Saturday Night Wrist. I think I just like... Saturday Night Wrist is sick, dude. You need to... I, I need to give that more a listen. It's it's worth it. Around I, the I, Fur, I think... I think, so. I think Around like the that, Fur... It's that early stuff that I don't particularly like, like that where there's... Where you can actually say like, yeah, they're probably a new metal band. Yeah, you know? they, they'll, they'll they'll act like they were never, but like, come on, come <laughs> they, on. I mean, they were always definitely. Uh, there there was always the shoegaze and like that mm-hmm. kind, of, and like the post punk stuff was always there. But like, I there's a there's a certain kind of guitar it was crunch. Def- there's definitely some fucking Adidas core. Yeah, and then like they grew up, where it's like you know when people, I I think most of the bands that have been influenced and say we like new metal just like Deftones. Yeah. Which is fine, you know. It's you know I, I can't think of many hardcore bands that are like, oh, we really like Corn. We're putting that influence in there. Well, I mean, look at every single modern hardcore band. Yeah, I guess. But so yeah, I I don't understand the Corn love. I mean, it's no, no. Dude, just I I don't know. Like people people that are that are like too young to know any better. I suppose these days are like. I don't know. There's just this whole generation of kids that are just slightly younger than us. Not kids, I guess, but like when I'm thinking of like hardcore kids, you know, but like there's this whole generation of people that are young, a little younger than us that like 
think it was acceptable to like that fucking dog shit. And some of them are probably listening, but like, sorry, yo, fucking new metal sucked. Yeah, I mean, listen to fucking disembodied. You get those new metal riffs without the it's guilt free. You get that down tuned guitar and seven string bullshit or whatever. It's true. It, I mean, the the difference between the riffs is just minute. Like, why listen to Code Orange when you can listen to fucking Disembodied? Exactly. Like, but why listen to fucking Corn when you can listen to Disembodied? Exactly. Was our was the point in the nineties, and now yeah. now in two thousand twenty three, it's why listen to Code Orange? Yeah. Why listen to I don't know, but that could be said for a lot of this shit. Yeah, it's just I I you know it's I I know kids want to try to bring the new metal back and like I think you get, there are good things obviously Deftones but then there's things that should just remain in the late nineties early two thousands you know just just let it be let it be like the Beatles but this wraps up this episode of the Cinematic Void podcast um you know. Tell us your thoughts. Do you like to live and die in L.A.? Do you like car chases? Do you not like car chases? Do you like corn? Well, if you if they like corn, they probably hit unsubscribe, and we're going to get a ton of one stars after that. But, you know, if you like corn, that's fine. We're, we're not judging, but we are judging because we are elitist assholes, and, you know, we're proud of that. But until next time, see you in the void. reading about the stars talked about how the stars are the eyes of God I think it's true don't you no